0: Uh, A lot of diagnoses occur very late. How do we shift that dial? And what are your thoughts about that? Would you say we have a sick care system here in Canada?
1: Absolutely. Again, I think we have to call it what it is. We have a sick care illness system in Canada, not a health care system. Our system is focused on diagnosing people with disease and treating those diseases. Our system is not focused on why some people get ill and other people don't. Our system is not focused on what is health and how do you create it. Our system is not focused on how do you create wellness, both in an individual, but also within their family and the communities they live in. So I think until we really step back and reframe how we define health and acknowledge the things that make some people healthy and other people's not, we are never going to be able to move away from the system that really is exclusively looking at disease processes. My name's Dr. Katherine Smart and you're listening to the Find My Vaccine Podcast.
0: Well, I guess it wouldn't be a pandemic if the guidance didn't really change almost every single day, or at least it feels that way. Today, we're going to chat with a very special guest and get her insights into the national perspective around public health in Canada, public health from an infrastructure perspective, of course, public health as relates to COVID-19 and how we arrived at the situation we are today with certain provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan, having very high rates of COVID-19 per capita compared to every other province in the country, where ICUs are now being filled up to the brim. We know our healthcare system is close to buckling. That being said, there's sometimes several silver linings that come out of pandemics, and we'll look also at what a post-pandemic legacy may be and, and where we're actually headed. Now, some people are calling this the pandemic of the unvaccinated, and we'll explore some of these conversations. So, Dr. Catherine Smart is a pediatrician in Whitehorse in the Yukon. Her work is centered on developing collaborative partnerships with community and government services to serve marginalized children using a model of social pediatrics. She works primarily uh, with children who've experienced trauma and adverse childhood events, and uh, she's witnessed uh, the broad and lasting impact uh, these events have had on children and their development journey. She's passionate about improving services for marginalized children in an effort to change their life trajectory. In addition to her community-based work, Dr. Smart provides on-call services to the hospital in an acute setting, and before moving to the Yukon, she was a pediatric emergency medicine physician at the Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary. Dr. Smart is the past president of the Yukon Medical Association, and she's the current president of the Canadian Medical Association or CMA, which represents over 80,000 physicians across the country. Now, Dr. Smart, thanks so much for joining us today. I think you're the guest with the most northern uh, latitude that's joined us as part of this podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Before we start, I just want to say that is a very sweet last name. I can only imagine when they're paging Dr. Smart. It's tough to argue against someone like a Dr. Smart, I'm sure.
1: Well, it certainly helps as a pediatrician. You know, the kids always get a kick out of that, so... That was partly why I chose pediatrics because I had the right name for it. <laughs>
0: nice. So let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us something about yourself that our listeners may not know about you, maybe a secret talent, a hobby. Um, do you have a secret sticker collection?
1: I'm extremely talented at airbanding. That's something people may not know, but I can airband with the best of them. And I'm actually just waiting for the pandemic to end so airband competitions can come back because here in the Yukon, they have an annual airband competition. And unfortunately, I found out about it. Then the pandemic hit, was shut down. So I'm really like looking forward to bringing my my talent to that when things are back to normal.
0: You know what we're going to do? Uh, we're going to have to get a, a video evidence of that at some point post-pandemic. And we'll share it on our podcast. Maybe we'll have a, a mini virtual competition here and bring you in for a round two. But that is super cool. Now, that's a talent I would not have uh, necessarily picked up.
1: Surprises people, but if you knew me more, you wouldn't be sh- as shocked.
0: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Now, you know, like any good interviewer, I like to look at people's Twitter feeds, okay? And I had a chance to look at yours. And as healthcare providers, I know that we're not supposed to be disclosing diagnoses about other patients or members of the public. But I think it's safe to say, and I won't get in any trouble with this, but it seems like you've either self-diagnosed or received a diagnosis of EPS. And tell us a little bit more. I was curious about what that is.
1: Well, thank you for asking. So EPS stands for excessive passion syndrome, and it's a a diagnosis I invented and gave myself. So after 20 years now in in healthcare, I was sort of reflecting on what best sums up my trajectory. And, And I think for me, it is that I I'm very passionate about the things I do and I, I bring that passion um, to my work, which I think is how I've ended up in this situation with the CMA. And anyone who knows me well, I, I think would say that's kind of what defines my approach to life. So I'm, I'm proudly a member of EPS and I invite anyone who that resonates with uh, to join the hashtag EPS cause.
0: There you go, EPS cause. Okay, well, it's a cause. Most diagnoses are not in that sort of frame of, of reference, but thanks for sharing that. So. I want to start by asking you about the recent federal election that we just had. And post-election, the CMA, in an open letter to Prime Minister Trudeau, supported commitments that were made in the platform to invest $25 billion in new health funding for finishing the fight against COVID-19, among other things, access to family doctors and primary care, and continuing progress on reconciliation. one aspect not mentioned there is long COVID. And it's certainly something that we'll have to be dealing with in our healthcare system for the foreseeable future. Do you think our healthcare system is equipped to handle the patients suffering from long term complications of contracting severe COVID? Uh, if I ask you that question today, what would you say?
1: I think I'm really concerned that we are not in a position to adequately address the health concerns of people impacted by long COVID. We know it's a complex, multifaceted syndrome. It likely for most people will require an interdisciplinary team to really address all the way it's impacting them in their lives. And I think what we know about our system already is that we're challenged to provide that type of complex care to people in a timely manner. And I think what we also know is that access to that level of service is really varied based on where you live in Canada. Hmm. Um, So if you're here in rural Yukon or you're in downtown Toronto, your ability to access teams with the expertise you might need to help you rehabilitate from something like long COVID is going to be very different and then we also know there's 5 million Canadians who have no access to primary care. So if you're mm-hmm. one of those people and you have long COVID, you know how do you access the healthcare system? How do you have someone who can advocate with you and help you navigate your way through the services you need to recover? Um, so I, I'm really worried about what that's going to mean for many Canadians.
0: D- did you notice any talk about that during the election campaign from any of the parties in terms of the platforms you've come across about investments specifically for long COVID? And I'll be quite honest, when I was kind of digging into some of the platforms, I didn't really pick that out. But maybe I I missed something. I don't know if you personally came across any sort of...
1: No, I don't think you missed anything. I did not see any of the parties specifically addressing how they would approach this. And I think in general, one of the challenges with the health platforms of all the parties is there was not a lot of specifics. And I, I think that's one of the things we now need to hold government accountable too as we move into this next seating of our parliament is, you know, great, we all know we need more resources in healthcare, but what are you going to actually do? What is the actual plan? And, and that comes down sometimes to specifics about what is currently challenging our population and what are the solutions to solve those problems.
0: The CME, in that same open letter, if you recall, mentioned that it's time to reframe healthcare or health in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that was referring to?
1: Absolutely. So I think what we know is up until really now with the pandemic, healthcare has been something I think that's been important to Canadians always, talked about by politicians and various political parties. But what we've seen is a lot of talk and not a lot of action. And that's been frustrating as we've seen, I think, our healthcare system dwindle in its ability to meet the needs of Canadians over time. So when we're talking about reframing health in Canada, we're really talking about taking that step back, really looking at what does it. Take to have a healthy population. What do we mean when we talk about health, and how do we develop a healthcare system and support a healthcare workforce to actually meet the needs of Canadians today?
0: And I agree in the sense that the pandemic and COVID, a lot's changed the way we work, we live, social interactions, and it's an opportunity, a window, if you could say, of some sorts, to look at not a reset but a relook, a, f- a fresh slate, because really nothing is guaranteed. And it's such an opportune time to have some of these conversations and debates. We also know that the pandemics revealed the cracks in our healthcare system, and in fact, amplified them. When we look at the challenges faced by Canadians from marginalized and underserved communities, specifically how COVID has really hit hard and and disproportionately impacted them. Could you tell our listeners, you know, what led to this? Why did this happen when it came to COVID hitting communities who are marginalized disproportionately? And where do we start to even attempt to close these inequities.
1: I think that's such an important question and and I think there's many factors in the answer. You know, we know that the social determinants of health are hugely impactful and the most important thing in terms of what determines someone's health and wellness over their lifespan. And I think it's no surprise that something like COVID found its way into communities that are traditionally marginalized and disproportionately impacted them because that's what we see really with all healthcare issues and wellness issues is that people who are marginalized are always bearing the burden of those conditions and diseases and situations much more than people that have privilege in our society. So I think we address that is broadly by recognizing that that is an issue and that we need to invest in things like alleviating poverty, addressing racism, reasonable pay for not only healthcare workers, but workers in general to really start to allow people to be lifted out of poverty. I think that's really important. From the public health side of, you know, why did we struggle in those situations? Some of it was the type of work that a lot of people do that are in marginalized communities or racialized communities. A lot of people are employed in congregate workplaces like factories, long-term care settings. other places where public health strategies were difficult to implement and they were still having to go to work when other more privileged people had the opportunity to work from home, which put them at risk of outbreaks. And that's what we saw happening. We saw a lot of people that were working for wages that did not provide a living wage, then having to work in multiple locations to be able to feed and house their families. And that then, again, exposed them to more risk of COVID. We know that our data collection in Canada is not very efficient at recognizing economic and racial indicators. So early on in the pandemic, it was hard to be clear on where exactly COVID was impacting more. And then we started seeing data come out of places like Toronto that made it really clear that marginalized communities, racialized communities were disproportionately impacted, which I think was no surprise to anybody in healthcare. But the bottom line is we really need to get down to the bottom of what creates these structural inequities and and how are we going to address them?
0: I like what you mentioned about data collection because you're right. Some of the aspects around equity, diversity, inclusion, some of the metrics and how to quantify that as it relates to healthcare inequities and access to healthcare and social determinants probably isn't being captured to the extent that we should be capturing it. It probably hasn't even been thought of too much when you look at it from a larger public health framework. And I think that's, as you said, where do we take a few steps back and look foundationally at how to reframe this conversation as well, though, seniors care has been brought to the forefront, as you know. Do we need to rethink the entire care delivery concept about care homes? At the end of the day, these are the individuals who help build this country and contribute to the tax base and this concept of having these facilities. And we've seen the immense challenges that some of these facilities have faced and the issues that have come up during this pandemic. Maybe one of the silver linings um, that these issues came to the forefront. But do you need to rethink care homes and how we take care of the elderly in Canada?
1: Oh, absolutely we do. And that is what we are hearing at CMA from aging Canadians is that this is a priority issue for them. And I think you're absolutely right in that that the pandemic really laid bare uh, what is going on in long-term care in Canada and how it is really extremely problematic. So I think we have several issues there. You know, one issue is we saw the real difference in standard of care between not-for-profit and for-profit long-term care facilities with imminently more cases of COVID and more deaths in places that were operating for profit. So that right there shows us the challenges you have when you're trying to deliver healthcare in that model uh, and people end up being exploited. So that was really problematic. Again, we saw the issue with personal service workers who were low paid wages and having to work in multiple facilities and how that put both them and their people they were caring for in the different long-term care centers at risk as COVID was introduced into these settings. Um, So again, that need to support and adequately remunerate healthcare professionals that work in long-term care, I think is really key. But then we also have the other issue I think you were getting at is, you know, what do aging Canadians want in terms Mm -hmm. of how they can age with dignity? And I think what we're hearing from people is they want options and choice. Many Canadians would prefer to age at home, but our system right now often does not provide the level of support that is needed to make that a reality. So how can we reimagine aging in Canada to give our elders more options, more choices, more opportunity to age in place, and with the dignity they're looking for. And for people that do require the level of care of a long-term care facility, because there still will be those people, how do we ensure that those spaces are safe and that the people that work in them are respected and the people that live there receive the care, the safe care that they deserve?
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. When I was thinking about the, this past uh, federal election, I, I believe there's some talk about a tax credit or a small amount to allow Canadians uh, who are elderly to age or stay at home as long as possible, but it was very small. I mean, it, it's good there's actually discussion. I think the, the actual number and, and the logistics will have to be figured out. But you look at some other countries and Norwegian countries where there's new models set up that are really, it's about integration into the rest of uh, the community if possible. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out over the next few months and how you at CMA will look at that as well. I also want to bring up that there's been troubling incidents brought forward of discrimination in our healthcare system towards Indigenous patients. And notably, uh, a coroner's inquiry very recently basically concluded that racism did contribute to the death of Joyce Echaquan in a Quebec hospital almost a year ago. And that really only came to light because she recorded the healthcare workers making those racist remarks. One of the key recommendations that came to light was to formally acknowledge that there's systemic racism in Quebec, healthcare, and that steps would be taken to eliminate it. Here in BC, we've had a review into racism, stereotyping, and discrimination against Indigenous people as well in the health system. And it was presented to the BC government, uh, a series of recommendations conducted by former Judge Mary Ellen Turpel-Lafont, which led to the development of the first Assistant Deputy Minister of Indigenous Health in the country. That's one of the recommendations. But, you know, what needs to change specifically in our health system? And, and, and I'm thinking about the lens of the health care provider and people like us does it start with a relook at professional academic programs like medicine, pharmacy, nursing, and how we're trained? Equity, diversity, inclusion is a nice buzz phrase, but do we need to do a lot more from the start when we uh, train uh, students in these professions?
1: I think we definitely do. You know, what I would say is I think what's so critical here is that the coroner attributed the death of Joyce to racism. So they actually gave the accurate diagnosis there. I think that's really, really critical to say the words. You know, so often I think we talk around these things. We don't call them for what they are. And it's impossible to treat someone's cancer if you don't diagnose it. It's impossible to treat racism in the healthcare system if we don't diagnose it, acknowledge that it's there, that it's something that unfortunately... Too many people deal with daily in their encounters with the system. So I think now that at least we've reached the point where we can acknowledge that this is what's going on, that we can say this woman died because of systemic racism, that is a major step towards taking the actions needed to change that. And I think it absolutely starts uh, at the beginning with training. You know, big part of that is who's in healthcare, Who gets in that front door to be trained as a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist? how representative of the diversity of our population are those groups of people? Because having people with lived experience, I think to really center others in terms of what they've seen, what their families have been through, what their lived experience in Canada has been is really, really important. And our healthcare professionals should reflect the diversity of our population. So I think who walks in the door is really important. And then I think absolutely the way we train people, the amount of curriculum and time that's spent addressing these issues and really making people in healthcare realize learning about these things, having skills in this area, learning to spot it, learning to address it, learning to take action is just as important as understanding Krebs cycle or the brachial plexus. We have to elevate these things to being as important as the science that we learn because they arguably probably impact people much more than all of these rare conditions or detailed scientific facts that we spend so much of our time learning about.
0: Very well said. It's leaving that same level of importance and putting it alongside the Krebs cycle and differential diagnoses and all all those good things because... You're right. It probably has a outsized role in terms of the uh, you know ultimate outcomes that patients that, that come to see us and that we go to see. I can tell you for myself, for example, I speak other languages like Punjabi and, and patients I find tend to open up a lot more about their experiences uh, compared to one of my other colleagues who speaks a different language and those refer- referrals. So looking at how we've been structured, I, I feel right now and as someone who also is, you know, um, teaching at the university as one of my roles. It, it's kind of a, a nice add-on to have that education, but it's not really ingrained into the cases and not just having it once over, but continually bringing it up as a key element throughout the curriculum. So there's a lot more work we can do there. Are you surprised considering that our healthcare system and the investments we make are largely orientated towards more of a reactive sick care model or sick care infrastructure I'm thinking hospitals. We invest in facilities rather than focus on preventative care. So making apples and avocados more accessible, and that's because I really like avocados and they're pricey. And catching disease before it actually progresses. Uh, A lot of diagnoses occur very late. How do we shift that dial? And what are your thoughts about that? Would you say we have a sick care system here in Canada?
1: Absolutely. Again, I think we have to call it what it is. We have a sick care illness system in Canada, not a health care system. Our system is focused on diagnosing people with disease and treating those diseases. Our system is not focused on why some people get ill and other people don't. Our system is not focused on what is health and how do you create it. Our system is not focused on How do you create wellness, both in an individual, but also within their family and the communities they live in? So I think until we really step back and reframe how we define health and acknowledge the things that make some people healthy and other people's not, we are never going to be able to move away from the system that really is exclusively looking at disease processes. And, you know, for me as a pediatrician, this is an area I'm particularly passionate about because I think our understanding of what causes disease has really expanded in the last 10 to 20 years regarding the impact of trauma and adverse childhood events and how those set that life trajectory for children. And that's what I see in my work being in the North, I see predominantly the impacts of intergenerational trauma, the impacts of colonialism, and how those is still impacting infants and babies that I meet daily in my clinical work. So we have to really be able to take that step back and say, if we want people to be healthy when they're 10, 20, 40, 70 years old, We need to start when they're in the womb. We need to start with their mothers, their fathers, their communities, creating that health and wellness and that skills to raise and create healthy environments so that children can thrive. Because prevention has to start right at the beginning. And right now we do not have a system that looks at health that way. Um, And that's why so much of our resource goes into illness models and disease-based care, but we're never really gonna get ahead. I don't think if that's the limited perspective that we take.
0: Why do you think we have such a reactionary um, system? Do you think it's partly because you look at provincial um, governments and how they operate on four-year election cycles, and you kind of have to show something's there's an outcome of some kind when you look at some of the investments, let's say, made in in early childhood development or other social determinants of health. Sometimes it can take a long time to actually notice the change. Do you think that's part of that? Is that how the politics can come into this whole conversation?
1: I absolutely do. I think any meaningful change that's going to be long term is complex, and it's never going to happen in a election cycle. So there's no question, I don't think that politicians naturally, you know, their currency is re election. So when they're looking at what they want to do, they love, you know, projects where there's a ribbon to cut a photo to be taken, something that they can say they did. Less interest, I think, in really digging into complexity, long term problems and putting investments into things where the payoff may be 12, 20, 30 years down the road. I think we've also really seen how our style of democracy and politics in Canada limits collaboration. And I think, again, the pandemic has really shown that. Instead of our political parties collaborating, both at the federal level amongst themselves and between our federal and provincial governments, to really try to find solutions for Canadians and to make sure as many people get through this pandemic as healthy as possible, what are we seeing? We're seeing politics at play. We're seeing decisions being made along political lines rather than things that make sense. We're not seeing collaboration. We're seeing arguing, name-calling, criticism. Mm. And it's really sad, I think, to see that and see how that style of governance limits that opportunity to collaborate, learn from each other, and actually create long-term solutions that benefit Canadians. And, And that's, I think, where we're stuck right now. And I think that spills over into our approach to healthcare as well.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, looking at one of the challenges of this pandemic, a little bit related to how things are framed, is that information is constantly changing day to day. It's tough even for healthcare providers to keep up with all the trials and public messaging and and the guidance. And when you have public health guidance that changes, how do we still maintain the trust of of Canadians who might be hesitant in that cohort of 15 to 20 percent who've not been vaccinated
1: I think that is absolutely such a challenge, you know, just what you said. How do you maintain the trust of Canadians when what they're seeing across the country is so variable, when guidance changes daily, often, sometimes weekly? I think it's very confusing for people, and I understand that. I think that's fair. I think some of the problem is helping people understand what science is. You know, science is not truth. Science is seeking truth, and that's why it does evolve and change as we learn more, I think, unfortunately, we live in again a culture of sound bites, headlines, and and in trying to create dichotomies, right? Black and white, true or false, good or bad. And when we try to break down science into that type of a narrative, it loses the complexity of the hmm. fact that what we know now and what we knew 18 months ago is very different. I suspect what we know 18 months from now is going to be different again. So I think that's challenging. I think it's also challenging again because we do not have a national coordinated approach and we have each province and territory determining their own public health response. I think it leads and and encourages that confusion because you know as a Canadian you're thinking to yourself, well, why I live here in PEI, why is what's happening with COVID totally different than what's happening in Manitoba? It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think if we had more of a national coordinated response, some basic standards that were in place that Canadians could understand, it would help with that. But I think the mixed bag approach has led to more confusion. And I think in a portion of the population that increased the distrust of the system
0: with this fourth wave i mean sometimes it's referred to as the pandemic of the unvaccinated i mentioned earlier and one of our guests suggested how that we how we frame public messaging should be dramatically changed and suggested stories of individuals who may have been against or he- hesitant to vaccines in the covid-19 vaccine and now regret that they they should have gotten it. And that, that, those type of stories should be showcased, or, or even the family members of those who have passed due to contracting the virus. There is a recent news story of a mother of two adolescent boys, and she'll have to raise them without their father after her husband lost a months-long battle with COVID-19. Um, could you see this possibly being an effective strategy? There's a, also a, an example, I think, from one of the Norwegian countries about encouraging, it's almost using reverse psychology to encourage those who are viewing the ad to not get the vaccine and then goes over the consequences and says, yeah, this is probably the best option is to not get the vaccine because you don't want to get the vaccine. Should we be looking at new and novel ways of engaging uh, folks in, in this conversation?
1: I think stories are very powerful ways of connecting with people. I see that in my own work often when I'm dealing with a family, parents, the stories of their lived experience or things they've heard from friends often is very impactful. And people tend to take those stories as relatable things that really inform how they make their decisions. So I think using stories, using people who have changed their opinion or suffered a negative consequence or are able to share how COVID impacted them to make it more real for people that perhaps have not themselves been impacted directly or haven't had a family member impacted, I think is important for sure. And I think there's a portion of the population that that will be impactful for. I think at this point, we need to recognize that there's multiple reasons that people have not been vaccinated and and each group likely requires a different approach. Clearly, we have a very powerful movement of misinformation Hmm. in the world. and, And this is not new, but now that we're facing a global pandemic, those voices have really been amplified and they're well-financed. And the people that are pushing that misinformation are benefiting financially in a huge way. So they're very motivated uh, to spread that narrative. And unfortunately, that has dug in. I think that is much more challenging to address in the short term because it's very powerful. And we really need our social media and media platforms to dig in against that. You know, So we've heard YouTube is no longer going to show vaccine Mm -hmm. misinformation videos, right? We've heard executives from Facebook coming forward, talking about the awareness they had at that company about how their platform was being manipulated to spread misinformation, yet perhaps not choosing to act. You know, we see on Twitter, the bullying and harassment of healthcare professionals uh, without a lot of action to shut down those accounts that are doing that. So I think we need some action on that level to not allow misinformation to spread as efficiently as it can and and to push back against that. And then I think we need to realize that for some people that are not yet vaccinated, there's other reasons too. So in my work, I see a lot of very marginalized groups of people for whom getting vaccinated is something they have just not been able to prioritize in their life. They're not against being vaccinated, but they have a lot of other needs that need to be met before they're able to prioritize going and getting a vaccine. These are often single moms living in poverty several children that are just facing the day each day. How am I going to feed my child? How do I get from A to B? So I think we need to recognize that we need to reach out to some segments in our population to really meet them where they are to enable them being vaccinated. Then we have people that are legitimately hesitant. They're not in that misinformation camp. They're just confused. There's a lot of information. They're not sure what to make of it all. They're having troubles balancing the risk calculation of, you know, how does the risk of the vaccine compare to the risk of COVID for them personally, and they're a bit paralyzed in their decision making. And that's where I think really creating low barrier access to reliable information where people can be respected and ask those questions and have answers is really important. And that's also where I think that personal relationship between primary health care providers, like a doctor and their patient is so important because often that trust and that relationship you've already built with the patient allows them to bring those questions to you and, and for them to feel comfortable with your answer. But I think we have to be really careful right now as we fight this, misinformation pandemic, that we don't inadvertently silence people who legitimately have hesitancy and make them feel like they can't step forward with their questions, because I think that will backfire. And we need to make it clear we welcome questions. Questions are normal. What we don't welcome is organized misinformation that's designed to purposely mislead people. And these are two different issues.
0: Yes, there's different reasons why people Either can't access the vaccine or can't fit into the day or hesitant for various reasons. And you also talked about trust and and sort of that provider patient relationship that could be one channel through which a patient might really look at uh, a measured and objective way of understanding the risk of COVID and relation to the risk of the vaccine. But looking at, I guess you can call it the most trusted messenger, how important is it as to who's delivering the science? And, And the reason I bring this up is. Um, talking about a conversation about professional schools and, and bringing equity diversity and, and talking about lived experience. I do agree that having a, a reflective, let's say, healthcare profession that is reflective of the population it's serving is absolutely key. But part of that is because sometimes in communities, for example, the priest might be the most trusted messenger, even more so than a doctor or a pharmacist or a nurse. Is that something that, you know, we should be paying more attention to? Uh, as healthcare providers, and we, when we talk to each other, we understand the nuances, but should we be engaging communities in a different way that really seek to understand the most trusted messenger and those that are vaccine hesitant or marginalized.
1: I think that's really, really important and critical. And I think we've seen examples of how that can be successful in pockets across the country. So we've seen leadership from First Nations going into First Nations communities having First Nations people, educating each other, talking to each other, addressing that misinformation. So that's huge, right? There you are with someone that you trust, someone that you feel understands you, that you don't feel has an agenda, and they're able to break down those barriers. We've seen, you know, people going into racialized communities with representatives from within those communities, again, to address their concerns, to be someone who looks, speaks, sounds like you, has your same lived experience addressing your concerns. And we've seen that that's been very powerful. Also agree, you know, in religious communities, the priest, the rabbi, the imam may be that trusted person in the community and the messaging they send is going to be very impactful. So I think we absolutely need to move beyond just healthcare professionals in the traditional sense, delivering this information to really rallying communities, especially communities that are underrepresented in terms of their percentage of of people vaccinated, to make sure they have the resources they need to address the concerns in their community in a culturally relevant and a culturally safe way. And if we can do that, I think we will reach more people.
0: Interesting. And I like the examples you shared about these communities. And and really, there's a lot of uh, different types of messengers that would be maybe more trusted in that respect and and looking at leveraging that as part of the public health strategy. We also, when we talk about the vaccine hesitancy as a conversation and whoever thought wearing masks would be uh, this polarizing and controversial, but do you think there's something larger at play here beyond just vaccine hesitancy? I know it's something that we talk about a lot as healthcare care providers, but at this point in the pandemic, call it a pandemic of the misinformation or, or the pandemic of the unvaccinated, but is freedom of choice and freedom of speech being pitted against the collective good or the sense of resistance to authority? Are we seeing something more than just vaccine hesitancy when you take one step back?
1: I think we definitely are. And I think in that small minority group of Canadians who are really dug in hard on these issues. I think that is what's happening, right? We see this rise of populism, this rise of sort of extreme sense of what constitutes your personal rights and freedoms and a rejection of any sort of respect for authority or expertise that travels with that. Unfortunately, I think the presidency of Donald Trump really unleashed That movement and has normalized some of that type of thinking and behavior that in the past was maybe seen as a bit more fringe. I think it's been emboldened. And I think that's unfortunate because I think we're seeing how that plays out in terms of those voices really trying to drown out the science and the actual accurate information. And again, this strict sense of, oh, you're violating my personal freedoms and my personal rights, I think really shows that people have lost sight of what it means to live in the community. Mm -hmm. Rights come with responsibilities. None of us have rights that supersede the rights of the people around us. And I think that narrative has gone a little bit off track because it's not coupled with the same conversation around, okay, you have some rights, yes, but you do have responsibilities as well. And we have many examples of that in our society. There's all sorts of limitations on your personal rights when they start infringing on the rights of other people. And for some reason, some of these things like wearing a mask, staying home if you're sick, somehow people have extrapolated this to feel that this is infringing on their personal freedoms, when clearly the impact they're having on others is very disproportionate. I think this is going to be a challenge for our culture going forward, how we address this. And I think it's really having an impact on our effectiveness in addressing COVID, especially in certain parts of our country where that narrative is more powerful.
0: When you're talking about the focus on COVID-19 as part of this whole public health emergency, and also the daily briefings we get in terms of the number of cases and deaths, do you think that we're losing the focus on the opiate crisis, i.e. the the, the, something called the dual pandemic, the opiate crisis, with all the eyes and resources on this COVID-19 pandemic uh, in Canada?
1: I think we had unfortunately already not done a great job on the issues of opioids even before the pandemic. This was clearly a huge health issue in Canada. It was causing again a disproportionate number of deaths of Canadians, especially young Canadians and Canadians in marginalized populations. It was being addressed to a point but not as effectively as it could be again we saw a lot of politics coming to play in terms of how provinces were willing to address the opioid issue and now I think it has been pushed to the back burner as the focus has been more on COVID but it is killing a lot of Canadians it is a huge issue it's not getting better it's getting worse we know what Many effective tools are to address issues with opioids, and we need to move past the politics and actually start using the science to help and treat people that are dealing with opioid addiction.
0: Well said. Not only were we needing to do more prior to this pandemic, but it just shows again the gaps in that particular epidemic of of sorts and how much more of a renewed focus we need. Here in BC, we've been hit quite hard and it, it impacts communities across the province and of course across the country. So as a pediatrician, this probably is a very uh, appropriate question for you. I was thinking about looking at the recent media chatter around Health Canada reviewing submissions for COVID-19 vaccines for ages 5 to 11. Do you support a vaccine mandate for all school-aged children should the vaccine be approved? And we know even here in BC, for example, a mask mandate for teachers is very much a tricky and controversial issue. But California recently announced they Mandate vaccinations for all children who theoretically would be uh, eligible. Would you support that Canada wide?
1: I think that might become a more straightforward issue in provinces or territories that already have vaccine mandates for other vaccinations, because then really what you're saying is okay, we already mandate childhood vaccines, which many jurisdictions do. It would make sense to add COVID 19 onto that, recognizing that right now it is the biggest infectious disease risk facing our population. And we see the numbers dramatically climbing in children, especially children under 12 who can't yet be vaccinated. So I think the extension in those jurisdictions makes sense. And I think it's something that we will see being considered as vaccines for that age group are rolled out. I think it might be more challenging in areas where there is no pre-existing vaccine mandate as it would be a newer type of approach to vaccination. I think depending how things go over the next few weeks to months, all of our levels of government are going to have to continue to grapple with how do they utilize vaccine mandates and in what setting and to what end if we are not able to see the number of Canadians electively choosing to be vaccinated increasing. And I think vaccine mandates are going to need to play a role in getting us where we need to be so that we can keep our society functioning and we can keep our healthcare system functioning and we can prevent unnecessary deaths from COVID.
0: It's interesting how you framed that alongside other childhood immunizations, which are routine, that we framed the COVID-19 vaccine for children in that same manner. And that could be an interesting way to allow for that conversation and uptake. Great um, suggestion. So as we wrap up here, uh, a few questions about the future. Rapid testing. Do you think that it's something that should be scaled up more? Are we going to see it as a new normal as we we move into the next phases of the pandemic or the, the next normal, if I can say?
1: I think it's definitely a tool that people are starting to explore and how can it be utilized. We're hearing talk of using it in school settings, particularly in areas or communities where the amount of COVID is high. And you're really trying to identify cases early to prevent spread in the classroom and prevent schools having to shut down. So I think that's one area where it could be really useful. We're seeing it in terms of some approaches to travel. If you want to go somewhere, they can rapid test you when you arrive, is limiting the importation of COVID into certain areas that might already have low cases. So that's an interesting tool. I think there's lots of ways that rapid testing could help us get back to normal and keep people safer. I think what's important is that we do not substitute rapid testing for vaccination. So in populations where people are eligible for vaccine, I don't think rapid testing people is the same as them being vaccinated. So we have to recognize the limitations of it as well. But I think as a tool to augment safety in settings, and I think particularly right now in schools and areas where there's large amounts of COVID to help identify asymptomatic cases and, and prevent spread in the classroom, I think it, it could be a powerful adjunct there for sure.
0: Return to campus at UBC, it's for the very small amount of people who are not vaccinated, they're subjected to regular rapid testing on a weekly basis, but it's not a substitute for being vaccinated. And we're waiting here to look at the next level of guidance. But again, looking at this conversation about the future, um, what's the roadmap? Let's say Dr. Catherine Smart has her crystal ball. She pulls it out today as part of the podcast. And if you had to postulate or hypothesize the roadmap for the coming year in terms of the pandemic, where are we headed? What do you think are going to be some major aspects that we'll see in the next year as part of the next normal?
1: Don't I wish I accurately knew the answer to that question? (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) I think we all would love to say, oh, 12 months from now, COVID is endemic and at low levels and there's no new variants and and life is what we remember it being, but I'm I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I think, you know, what happens over the next 12 months is going to depend on many things. Within our own country, of course, our success at pushing up that vaccination rate, allowing children to be vaccinated younger children is gonna be huge because they are 15% of the population. So that can perhaps move us closer to herd immunity, recognizing that with the Delta variant, those numbers need to be much higher than what we had initially hoped, which is making it more challenging. So I think how that happens, you know, whether and who chooses to be vaccinated and whether we're able to get those numbers up higher and the impact that has on reopening, I think is going to be huge. Novel things like using rapid testing in different environments if the vaccination rates aren't where we need them to try to keep these essential things open, I think is going to be probably more of a discussion and come into play. I think the real wild card that could change everything is how well do we do as a globe getting everybody vaccinated? You know, we know Mm -hmm. right now there's huge inequity in the world with, you know, we've been very fortunate in Canada that we've had early and rapid access to vaccine and enough vaccine for all Canadians, but so many parts of the world don't have that. And that is a Petri dish for more variants. And there is, of course, the risk that another variant even more deadly or more efficient or more skilled at evading the vaccines could emerge. And that may change the whole landscape of what's in front of us. So just like as individuals, we're not dealing with COVID on our own, we're dealing them with it with our friends, neighbors, our communities, our country is also not in this alone. And the things we do in Canada will have an impact. But what's happening in the rest of the world could have a really serious impact on what happens in Canada as well. And I think that's the real wild card right now, right? How do you get vaccine to people in countries that have very poor health infrastructure, very poor public health infrastructure, and many millions of people living in poverty, that's going to be a huge, huge challenge. And I think what happens there is going to really impact what we're dealing with. So I think we're going to see a winter of masking, of outbreaks of COVID in various settings. Uh, I think we're not going to be back to normal for a long time. But I do think the more we can drive up the vaccination rate, hopefully see the pressure come off of our healthcare system, and start to be able to manage covid like we do other respiratory illnesses that's going to be a huge step forward but it's very clear we are not there yet it's very clear that delta is incredibly efficient at finding people with no immunity and infecting them rapidly and it is a more serious variant it makes people sicker and that's what we're seeing in alberta and saskatchewan and you know i just i just hope that these next few months, more people choose to be vaccinated, that it has the impact that we hope it will have, that people, you know, can see the value in continuing to wear masks indoors, staying home when they're sick, all those really basic things that can help keep people safer, and that the rest of the world has the opportunity to be vaccinated as well. And then maybe if that's the case in 12 to 18 months, things start to become better. Uh, But I think we're not out of the woods yet.
0: There you go. There's Dr. Smart's uh, crystal ball and predictions for the future. So we'll have to maybe revisit that and see how close it is maybe 18 months from now. Before I ask my last question, we saw also recently in the last few weeks, some new therapies emerge with some promising clinical trial data looking at for those with mild symptoms of COVID, preventing them from getting more severe symptoms, uh, five-day oral therapy. Uh, Do you think those types of therapies will become more commonly available and used in the setting as we we move towards the next normal?
1: I suspect they will. Again, it's important that people understand they are never going to be as effective as vaccine. Right. And then it also brings out that equity issue of people who have drug coverage will have opportunities likely to access some of these pharmaceuticals because most of these things are not inexpensive when they're brand new and patented. And then you're going to have a large number of Canadians who do not have access to pharmaceuticals that will not be able to access those treatments. So I think it's going to create a big equity issue. I think we need to be careful we don't take our eye off the importance of vaccine and focus on pharmaceuticals as a substitute. But it is certainly promising that there's more treatment options coming because that's important and there's definitely be a role for that. But again, I think it really highlights the health inequities we see in a system where pharmaceuticals are not part of our universal healthcare
0: system. From a personal point of view, what do you think will be a legacy that comes from this pandemic in terms of how we plan and think about public health in Canada, um, as well as the larger Canadian healthcare system?
1: In terms of public health, I think it's made people really realize that the public health system has not had the funding it needed to be ready for an event of this magnitude. We'd seen cuts to public health for many years, and now we've seen public health work just so hard. I mean, it's incredible, all the public health professionals that have just been working around the clock to try to address this. But I think when it's over and we look back, what we will see is that we need better investments in public health. We need to make sure that infrastructure is in place And we need a national framework to allow better collaboration between levels of government so that we can more efficiently respond to these types of emergencies in the future. And with climate change, I think it's really concerning that we may see more pandemics than what we've been accustomed to. So we really need to be prepared. In terms of our healthcare system, I really do hope that when things start to get better, that we don't forget about all the cracks in that foundation that we've been all seeing over this last 19 months. I hope we really do see the political will to step back, really look at health, the health system and the health workforce and commit to the investments that are needed and the innovation and the thinking that's needed to recreate a modern healthcare system that meets the needs of Canadians and not just have it go back on the back burner. So I hope we, we take this moment in history and we use it as an opportunity to really start creating and designing a system that meets the needs of Canadians.
0: Dr. Catherine Smart, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today great conversation. Any last words for HCPs, all the healthcare providers tuning into the the podcast episode today?
1: I just want to say thank you. You know, I've never been prouder to be a healthcare professional. It's been absolutely amazing to see so many healthcare practitioners step forward in so many ways, so much advocacy, so much hard work on the front lines, so much Commitment to trying to get the information out there, support each other. Um, so I'd just say stay strong, be proud of the profession you've chosen. It's incredible to see just the heart that so many people in healthcare have for their fellow Canadians and their commitment.
0: Dr. Catherine Smart, pediatrician, CMA president, and airband aficionado. We'll follow up on that at some point and set up a competition or virtual airband competition there. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
1: I take your challenge and thank you so much.
0: Sounds good. There we go. I love podcasts because it's on the air. There's no denying or disputing it there. We'll follow up with you soon. I was on Twitter recently and saw a post by someone that said WhatsApp, Instagram and Facebook being down might be how we reach herd immunity. Now think about that. It really lends itself well to the conversation around the dissemination of public health messaging, the role of certain types of media and how powerful they have become in our daily lives, the great facebook instagram whatsapp outage of 2021 i.e it was down for a few hours i think we all panicked a little bit some of us are probably pleasantly surprised that we can actually live without these social media channels that we can live without scrolling for the entire day these are interesting aspects and part of the conversation that we have to look at when we look at targeting individuals who have not gotten their second dose or have not gotten any dose of covid vaccine Today's episode, Dr. Smart lent some really interesting insights around the pandemic and her take as to how we can look at the final battle against COVID, what it means to engage those 15-20% of Canadians who have not gotten a vaccine. I didn't have a chance to ask if she would be comfortable traveling or going on a plane tomorrow if she was awarded a ticket to Europe or the Bahamas. But I think that's a conversation that people thought they'd be having at this point of time. As we know, we're uh, well into the fourth wave. And as we approach the colder winter season, things could, depending on the variants and the level of the population that is immunized, things could really change quickly. Uh, It's really tough to predict, so we really appreciate your insights around the future. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to get in touch. We'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. What did you think about the conversation with Dr. Smart? Thanks so much to all the healthcare providers tuning in today. Until next time.